Women making waves. You just messaged me a oh, yes. while ago. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And you said, uh, give me a couple of minutes because my laptop is playing silly buggies. Yes, I did. <laughs> is that is that a phrase that, that you've used for a long time? Because you do know that's not right. Don't no, you? I do know that's not right. I'll tell you why that came up as buggies instead of something else. It's because of my predicted text on, oh, on right, my right, phone right, right. and do you know what refuses I left to swear. it yes it refuses to swear yes. oh that's fine because I thought <laughs> maybe it was a pram thing <laughs> and maybe forever you'd been calling it silly buggies I know I am prone to doing things like that I have to say Linda but I've never noticed Susan. yeah really <laughs> I think you're being very very kind <laughs> as usual I, know, I think I'm being sarcastic <laughs> I actually I know I have I'm, noticed. I'm just telling everyone how nice you really are Linda <laughs> That's well, all. That's not right at all, really, is it? <laughs> mm, silly buggies. Yeah, silly buggies, I know. And it was such a great thing. Sometimes I get so irritated by predicted text on my... Yeah. Do you find that when you, you you read it for the for the first time, you think, I'll just read my text? Yes, yeah, when you don't read it and you've already clicked send. Yeah, but somehow it changes before I send it. So you look at it, you think, well, that's great. And <laughs> between, then suddenly... Between reading it and sending it, yes, really, I I'm don't sure, think so. I'm sure my phone has a, has a mind of its own. <laughs> anyway, talking about minds of their own, what about horses? They've got a great mind, haven't they? I don't know. I don't know any horses. <laughs> I've known any horses to write a, a novel. I've never known any horses who become members of parliament. I've none of ever gone to university. And I don't think they've got great minds necessarily. I think they're clever in their own way. You know, they can run around a field and they're quite good at jumps. I think the way they look at you, it does. I, I think they do sum you up really, don't they? Yes, yeah. they do. I mean, but I don't yeah. know. Yeah, uh, you know, they, minds. no, you don't know they've got great minds, but we do know that they have have a sense of something that we can't sense. Oh, Let's absolutely. Well, way. all animals do, don't yes. they? I yes, do wonder they what do. they see when they look around the world. Well, they're a lot taller. <laughs> no, I don't mean the view. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they might just see the world in a very different way. Yes, I'm sure they do, but we'll never know. Not, I don't mean over the hedge. <laughs> just. <laughs> But anyway, well, the reason we are talking about horses, are we not, Linda? Because we got to chat with a very interesting lady called Grace Lawson Baker. And she is an equine facilitated human development practitioner and speech and language therapist. Now, she's got some amazing qualifications. She has. Yeah. Very interesting person who's kind Mm. of connected the two things that she does and she's brought them together, hasn't she, Susie? I thought that was very interesting. I think it's a a good thing to do, actually, if you have got two worlds that seem to be really, really far apart. That's true. Bringing them together can provide quite an unusual and unique experience, really. Well, and she is helping people overcome challenges basically something that she had to get over herself in her younger life anyway we'll hear all about that later on the program and what else is coming up linda well music 
Now, our next guest is someone who is quite well known in the local folk music scene, but she's now into a different type of music. And she is into the kind of music that is more making noise. And she's in The Noisy Women, which I think is great, great title. Oh, it is a great title, isn't it? It Mm. really is. And you're right, it's an interesting sound and I, I like the way... It's more lateral thinking than think before because we always think we know what sort of music there is in this world. But actually, Farah has got something even more interesting for us to find out about as well. And that's all coming up as well in the programme today. Absolutely. So, shortly speaking to Faradina Afifi. You're listening to Women Making Waves radio show and podcast, brought to you by Susie Thorpe and Linda Ness. This show is all about women doing extraordinary things. I don't really know where to start in introducing Faradina Afifi, or Farah as we'll call her. She's a Tai Chi instructor, massage therapist. She's interested in alternative medicine. She's a violist, a cellist, professional singer, and I believe she can dance too. Farah is co-founder of The Noisy Women, I read a rather good review of their show in allaboutjazz.com and thought, she sounds like a woman who's making waves. Thanks for joining us today, Farah. Hi there. Thanks for the introduction. Well, you know, <laughs> I, I think you sound very interesting. So tell us a little about yourself. You, you're a multi-instrumentalist. When did you become interested in music? I mean, my mum would be able to answer that better. But as far as I understand from what my mum said, I've been making sounds and things probably since before I could crawl I think so I was always playing um, making noises and sounds and stuff I actually had a bit of a gap in my early 20s I stopped playing for a few years I can't even remember why I just uh, I just stopped and then uh, restarted again when I uh, restarted Tai Chi my instructor at the time was very encouraging. It's not just about martial arts. You've also got to look at your creativity if you want to. Um, there's a lot of um, Tai Chi instructors, one that was very um, influential to me earlier. And she was always talking about where creativity and martial arts meet. And I really I really liked a lot of her poems and things. So um, I'd go to various Tai Chi events and then turn up with my my viola and start playing so yeah I've been a community musician so I've mainly been playing with people who would be classified as non-verbal communicators and some of them have challenging behavior and I'd, I'd play music um, with them and then they'd calm down I've been doing that since 2006 but mainly around Cambridgeshire then the pandemic happened and basically most of my work all stopped overnight so I had to kind of reinvent myself on Zoom so I was teaching my Tai Chi classes on Zoom from my back doorstep in all (laughs) weathers while we were all locked down and then uh, while I was also doing that that was by day and then by night I was going to as many of the different online uh, music sessions that were going some were either folk sessions I was going to because I'm um, part of the local folk scene in Cambridge. I'm in a duo with Martin Kajak and we've been playing about 
six years now, something like that. Uh, we've only just started coming out again and playing. We had a few gigs recently. It's been great getting that back to normal. Mm. Uh, and then I was also going to all these free improvising online workshops and realised it was really good fun to play. And I've uh, started sort of running my own things and also exploring where free improvised music and free improvised movement cross Again, I've just I've just had recently had an email from another partner in crime of mine, Peter Shearer. He's a healing musician. He does um, a music called soaking music, which is a type of Christian healing music. We've been working together for well over ten years. I do the movement part, and then he does the music, and I play with him, and he taught me how to soak. So that's what I was mainly doing with my um, more health communities. So I'll come and play music. And also work in a care home that specialises for people with dementia. So I'm doing uh, Tai Chi, massage and a bit of Reiki now. I've just started learning that. And then one-to-one music for people with dementia. And that's it's pretty interesting. But yeah, I'm I'm either moving about or making noises, (laughs) usually at the same time. (laughs) I've got to say, Farah, I'm just going to put the one word in. Wow. I mean, I I think you're doing so, so much and all for the right reasons. Just going back to lockdown, you say that you've had to change the way you've been working along with lots of other people. Do you not think, thank goodness for platforms like Zoom, that you were able to continue? Oh, absolutely. If it hadn't been for Zoom, I I got offered to go back to doing um, healthcare assistant at the uh, hospital. And it would have meant that I'd have had to have got a proper job. I like being self-employed. I'm also autistic, so I much prefer to work doing the things that I'm good at and feel comfortable doing. Although I did really enjoy working at the hospitals. I used to work for the agency and I'd go in various places, mainly people with learning disabilities and head injuries and things. But I'm still working with the same people, but I'm just sort of either getting them to move about or playing music with them. And then through through the lockdown and going to all these online things, people were encouraging me to play in some actual gigs um, rather than just in a in a lounge somewhere where people are living. Mm. Sort of, I guess, broke into the free improvising circuit in June last year. And mm-hmm. I've played in Glasgow and Sweden and Wales and London. I've always thought, Farah, jazz must be quite a difficult genre, actually. I mean, how do you practice? Because it feels very spontaneous when you're doing it. Is, is there a kind of game plan before you go into a gig? It's actually very similar to when I go into work at the, the home I work at, in that you'll just sort of turn up and you know you're going to go there to do a thing, but you've got no idea what's going to happen. And as long as you've got that openness then it, it's fine. I mean, I'm not just to sort of qualify. I'm a, I'm a, I haven't got degrees or anything in music. It's just something that I can do. I've started learning. I'm learning classical music off a, off a cello teacher. We're going to do my grade six because I thought, well, I better learn how music's actually put together. I, it's just something I can do. And uh, with the folk music, I just went and turned up to some folk clubs in sort of 2003 and started joining in with them and then played for various folk people so free improvising it's related to jazz but it's not 
exclusive to people who play jazz. The closest thing I've come to it is actually from uh, Tai Chi. I also practice a related art called Ichuan, which is intent boxing. You practice all your basics and then you do spontaneous movement and you don't know what's going to happen or what movements you're going to do. So um, I've been working with that, actually funnily enough, through lockdown and then uh, mixing it in with the music. So I'm, um, yeah, it's, it's, um, I can even play you some. Oh, that would be interesting. Wow. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, because um, the sound's so good here. But it's, um, yeah, I mean, when, when I'm playing folk music, I'm, um, so what you can hear is the sound of my, my fiddle being open. Because <laughs> um, that was what was the instrument that was on the top. I'm actually a viola player. But, um, and I'm, I'm a kind of multi-ish instrumentalist, but only if it's got strings and can play it with a bow. Uh, I can do a bit of piano as well, and obviously I sing, and then I kind of bang and bash things. So I, I play... Um, pots and pans, I, play I believe. I objects, yeah. yeah, pots and pans. Yeah, there's a, there's a video of me on the Noisy Women channel playing my, my friend's uh, kitchen implements. <laughs> But I've also done a piece where I got recorded playing a metal staircase and I also recorded a thunderstorm. I like to do field recordings when I have have the time. Oh, that's and interesting, I, I yeah. And I mixed them together yeah. and then added some other bits and I, I use them as soundtracks for some of my Tai Chi classes. But um, mm-hmm. So I never know where I'm going to start, but... So you just, you just kind of... It's about exploring... And uh, exploring what sounds you can make on your instrument. And it, it's, it's purely situational. So it kind of depends on, uh, for example, when I'm, when I'm playing in purely improvised music, I like birds. So um, I like to listen to what I can hear outside and also what you can hear inside your body and then you alternate between the two and see what see what comes out so you can so for example i'm using my my fiddle as a little drum here and mm-hmm. then you people pay lots of money in europe to listen to hours and hours of this at festivals and you wouldn't think it at all really um, and then when i'm not <laughs> doing all that strangeness usually in the context of a, a healing environment, if I am doing anything improvised, it will be very, very tuneful. And for things like um, helping people feel more spacious and comfortable in their bodies and stuff. Yeah, so. tracks that I've made of sort of bird song usually and then I'll there's a lady in one of the places I work if I play that 
with the bird song, she's really, really calm and very happy, and um, it's it's really nice. It sounds so mm. beautiful, Linda, doesn't it? I mean, it's all very new to me that sound, and it sounds absolutely gorgeous. I was just reading very recently that the opera singer Andre Bricelli must get that yeah. right. Quoted, he said, "We use music to say things we could never say with words," and I get the impression. Maybe that's how you perceive music as well? Yeah, my um, relationship with music, it's definitely got a non-verbal relationship. They've done science on, on music and people's things like blood pressures and heart rates and feelings of calm and things can in- increase with types of music. Yeah, it depends on what, what framework I'm using. If I'm using music, I'm not a music therapist, but I'm a... Um, a community musician so we go into all sorts of different situations and basically use music so people can interact and communicate and relax and feel better. One of my mentors Josie Nugent she's a music therapist she trained at Anglia Ruskin and she works specifically with babies with Down syndrome. She's one of the people I'll contact if something interesting's happened musically and I'll go oh this happened what do you think and then she'll give me her opinion as a music therapist and uh, also I go I go busking I'm I'm, I'm a street musician as well so oh, if wow. I'm out busking with my friend Banjo <laughs> Nick you can really see the effect on a on a ground level of what music has on people we usually sit down to play so we'll both be on he's he's on a he sits on a bin and I sit on a <laughs> on my fold-up chair you'll notice people's walking speed will slow down yeah if the music we're playing is really good and then the whole because i you know obviously from the tai chi i look at people's posture their posture will change so the shoulders will relax their breathing will seem to slow down they might even start smiling and they won't even consciously have noticed something's happening but it's quite an interesting way of people watching skills when you're out busking it's very nice do you find it easy, Farah, to pick up new instruments? Are you one of these people that picks up an instrument pretty quickly? Yeah, I think so. I think, I th- yeah, I, I can usually get a sound out of most yeah. things I pick up. I mean, there is technique. I, I was given a, a clarinet and, and then they played a tune and then I could somehow manage to play the tune. But I'm not sure if I could repeat wow. that. Yeah. I just, I think I've just got a knack. Yeah, a natural. Mm. Yeah, that's that's yeah. why. Yeah, that's so um, I'm, that's why I'm I'm learning all the technical stuff after the effect, really. But it is useful. Farrah, when you're performing or when you're communicating with an audience, can you sort of think back to a moment where you thought, "Wow, this is a really, really good moment." I mean. When Do you get some really interesting feedback from your audience? I'm just trying to sort of get in to the head of the performer so we can hear what you feel when, when we're looking at you, if that makes sense. Yeah, really, really interesting because most of my um, performing, at least the last couple of years, has been on Zoom and I've been uh, regularly attending a, an online folk club and I did a version of a song called Three Ravens. I call it Three Ravens 2020, and I I basically took the words that Thomas Ravenscroft collected in 1611 and put the George Floyd story on top. I sung it and um, usually sing it sort of between 8 minutes 40, I think it was 8 minutes 46 is the, if you look it up on on Google, 8 minutes 46, I think that's that's the, how long it was supposed to, or... um, 
usually it's about nine-ish minutes or something like that and um there's like this silence when I finished it and then there was a there was a silence and it was quite Mm. moving I suppose yeah yeah and then I I ended up performing it in Sweden with a 14-piece ensemble which was uh, which was in pretty cool and then there's some other other songs I tend to take uh, folk songs and I I make them work for me because that's what what's been happening for centuries you can either do them how they were done traditionally or you can do them how they were done traditionally by doing it how you do it and and both are perfectly valid you can tell something's happening because there's this real quietness and then that's at the end. But then also, especially with the uh, free improvised music, you get these moments of it's almost like the energy changes or there's a switch or something. I guess it's like watching an experiment or something. Yeah, I can imagine. And every audience will be different as well, I think. Yeah. Everything, even if you've got the same audience, because it's on a different day, it's different. For example, in the folk music, I have a, I rehearse, especially in my duo. But in, in the free improvised music, you don't really rehearse because you don't really know what notes you've... You wouldn't be able to repeat those notes. I'm fascinated by musicians, like I'm sometimes very fascinated by people who are extremely good at maths or... Um, do you do you think music all day and every day? Do you do you look at a particular a sentence or a word and think you could you know make it something out into music? Does it does that come to you quite naturally? I'm assuming it might do. Um, yeah, it's it's not just that. It's um, I'm learning to read and write music, but I'm quite slow at, at that. I think because I've never really needed it because I yeah. can just kind of do it. Like if I'm practicing my Tai Chi form. I'll sometimes get some tunes or sounds uh, coming. But then also when I'm listening to music, I'll get sort of images of shapes mm. and movement. So it's it's almost like those bits of the brain I got tested. I can I can use both both hands, so apparently I've got... Um, oh, you're ambidextrous. Yeah, I've <laughs> got an unusual brain in that most of my brain works, both, both sides work. That's quite a knack, actually. It is a knack. So with the music... There's also shapes. So when I'm playing, I'm not just playing still. Sometimes I'll be moving around and actually mm, playing the shape of the sound. That's really, that really interesting. With. So that's why I like to hang out with... I've got some uh, new friends that I like dancers and movement. Um, I'm not a dancer, but I, I can move. Mm. Uh, but more from a Tai Chi perspective. But hopefully we're going to do a little bit of mixing. They can show me some dancing and I can show them some Tai Chi and maybe we can meet in the middle. Yeah, because I, I noticed that Noisy Women, which is a good name. I wish we'd thought of Noisy Women for this podcast, to be quite honest. But anyway, no, <laughs> yes, <laughs> Noisy <so> Women, <laughs> but you're into your visuals as well. Yes, well I noticed in, in the gig I read about there was somebody drawing and you had it on a big screen behind. And Gwendolyn, yeah. yeah, she does live visual arts. So she will listen to the music and draw the shape of the music and also what we're doing when we're playing with Gwen is we're watching what she's doing and we're playing what she's drawing. Oh, wow. So it's like a graphic, uh, in, in improvised music you can get this thing called a graphic score where someone will do a drawing or do colours and do wiggly shapes and then the musicians have to interpret what they're seeing. I think it's about getting into those parts of the brain that are purely based on creativity. So, uh, for example, we're part of the Noisy Women Present, 
So the, there's four noisy women. There's me, there's Gwen, there's a lady called Maggie Nichols, who, who was basically the godmother of improvised music in the UK. And there's also uh, Marion Treby, who, who helps run the Cambridge Folk Club, who I, I roped into this kind of music during lockdown, because um, we're good friends. And, and she plays for the choir and stuff and does lots of folk and classical. She's a classical piano player and very, very good. And she's helping me with my technical music. And I'm helping her move because I'm teaching her some Tai Chi in return. And it's really good. I said, here, I've been going to this online orchestra for improvisers. And she'd, she'd actually done improvised music when she'd done her degree in it. But a very, very, very long time ago. So I, I kind of dragged her. Um, <laughs> and then I said... Who do you want to join? Uh, and she's one of the one of the founding noisy women. And then we uh, we became a, a quartet, including um, an artist. So we do smaller gigs, not just with women. There's still a little bit of an imbalance in personnel in jazz and improvised music, and that it's not that there's anything wrong with guys playing music with guys, but it would be nice if there was more diversity and equality and stuff. So that's what the noisy women's to just help mm-hmm. gently rebalance. Um, so we're not exclusive to just playing with women, especially now with gender being more of a flexible concept. We're the four noisy women, but we play with everybody. So not just any musician, we'll play with dancers, we'll play with other artists, we'll play with spoken word people. Anyone that wants to explore sound in different ways. A good mix might be four noisy women and two quiet men. That might be quite... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've done we've done that. Yeah, our last our last gig because of the dreaded COVID, we ended up having to swap our personnel maybe three or four times because one of them went there, oh I can't come, I've got COVID. Oh can you bring someone else? And then I think our last noisy women gig, I think there was actually more men than women, but that's mm. okay. It's it's fine. It's we're we're happy to play with everybody. What happened was I had my friend uh, who I met in Sweden. She's from Greece. I said, oh, do you want to play a gig in England? I'd been given a date uh, at Cafe Otto in London. And then I thought, well, hang on a minute. If my friend's coming all the way from Greece, it seems a bit of a shame to just play one concert if you've come all the way from Athens. So I thought, I know, I'll, I'll get her to do another one. So I booked St Paul's Church two days before our, our showcase gig, I guess, in, in London. And then I looked inside St Paul's Church and thought, six people aren't going to cut it. This place is huge. I know, I'll invite some more people. Now there's like nearly 60 people <laughs> coming to play in the church. And it's the um, the Noisy People's Improvising Orchestra. Wow. Farrah, I would, I would almost call you an absolute game changer in literally trying to change perceptions of how to perform music and how to connect people with music because it's not all about as you say reading music and devising music it's actually listening to what you can do I, I, I think it's incredible actually what you're doing yeah I really like your approach you know I like yeah. the approach that you started off with one thing in mind and then you went along to the venue and it was big so therefore you, ch- <laughs> you, you, you just do I think you just kind of do things as fits don't you by the sound yeah, of it right. you just kind yeah. of change with adapt and and get on with it yeah 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 yeah, well, I did care work for a long time, and that's what you did all the time, really. You'd, you'd have your, this is what's going to happen, and then, oh, things have changed. And then you had to be able to, to change and adapt with them. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Farah, what do you find is the most important thing about what you and your fellow performers are doing? What, what do you think is, is important about 
the, 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 the music and the communities that you create? Um, I think it's connection. You're, you're connecting with the mm. musicians, you're connecting with the music you're playing, and then what you're playing is connecting with the audience. That's where I'm at at the moment. I've been, I've been looking in connection in my own practice. Uh, one of my Tai Chi teachers was saying, um, you've got to feel the connection, the natural connection through the body. One of the things with uh, Tai Chi Chuan and, and the pandemic is that people got a bit disconnected from their bodies because they were all panicking too much mm. and all this doom and gloom stuff. It puts you in your head and then you're not really feeling what's going on. So if you just take some time, you know, even notice how you're sitting and notice what you're sensing and giving yourself some room and space to take it all in. And then that's where interesting things can happen. And I think music is very sociable. I'm, I'm not really a soloist. I'm a, well, I'm a community musician. So it's about, you know, being in your community and, and cheering them up by playing strange, strange noises at them. And <laughs> they might like it. <laughs> Well, I so enjoyed talking to you, Farah Afifi, today and learning about what you do. It's really interesting stuff. Who'd have thought somebody who was into very kind of noisy, jazzy improvisation would also be into folk? You know, very, very interesting. And thank you. Thank you very much for joining us today. Coming up after the break, you'll be hearing from Grace Lawson-Baker, an equine-facilitated human development practitioner whose company is called Grace with Horses. 105. Cambridge 105 Radio. Kickstart your weekend. Saturday Breakfast with Matt Webb. I'm here every weekend to get you moving. I have the latest from the Cambridge News Desk on the hour and half hour. Problems on the A14, Newmarket Road or Mill Road? Well, if there are, you'll be the first to know in the travel. There's a full sports roundup at 8.30, including what's happening at Cambridge United and our other local clubs. Plus a look at the Saturday papers and local online publications at 10 to 9. That's Saturday Breakfast with me, Matt Webb, this weekend from 8. If you're like me, you've got a family and a business. And you want to protect what's most important when the chips are down. With Woodfine Solicitors, that's exactly what happens. I got a bespoke legal service from a friendly expert team. They really listened to what was going on and tailored their recommendations to my situation, which was, well, that's another story. Anyway, the best thing was that it all happened online. A few simple clicks and I had my quote. That freed up time to focus on everything else. Get the help you need when you need it most. Visit woodfinds.co.uk or call Cambridge 411421. Woodfinds, cutting through the red tape. What does your home need to feel complete? Gap Home Improvements have been helping customers give their properties that curb appeal for over 20 years. You've seen our vans in your area providing dedicated support to families across Cambridgeshire. Windows, doors, garden rooms, conservatories and warm roofs. We offer free quotations in a pressure-free environment. In person, on the phone or by video call, our consultants will help you realise your property's true potential. Call Cambridge 914 567 or visit gaphomeimprovements.co.uk today. You're listening to Women Making Waves radio show and podcast, brought to you by Susie Thorpe and Linda Ness. This show is all about women doing extraordinary things.
Our guest today is Grace Lawson-Baker. Now, it's not often we get a chance to speak with an equine-facilitated human development practitioner and speech and language therapist. Grace's company is called Grace with Horses. And I know Grace won't mind us also adding that she lives in West Sussex with her husband, Neil, who's a sculpture and artist, three dogs, four chickens, and three horses. And she's also the proud grandmother of Ileana and Sophia, the twin lights of her life. Hello, Grace. Lovely to have you on Women Making Waves. Lovely to be here. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> oh, it's um, a pleasure. I've, I've actually got more horses than that now. <laughs> oh, well, that's excellent. Well, we'll oh, know. Wow. We'll, yeah, we'll, <laughs> that's even better. So we'll talk yeah. about that. But the question I think I'll start off with, Grace, is it seems that you have at least, if not a whole lot more, wonderful attributes to yourself as a unique and interesting practitioner and a therapist and of course your horses when it comes to helping both adults and young people. Can you just explain a little bit about what Grace with Horses is all about, Grace? I work with horses helping me in providing therapy for people. What horses do is they provide a feedback mechanism somehow. Um, For instance, how the horse behaves with a person shows the person how they're showing up in the room, if that makes sense. So it's easier through example. I've been working with a couple recently and the husband in the couple, currently he's in a much more sympathetic nervous system state. So he's, he's much more in fight and flight, ready to go type of state. They both suffer trauma and His wife is in a much more dissociated, sort of more collapsed state. They're slightly opposites of each other. When they go in with the horse, the horse mirrors that. So they both went in with a horse the other day. They were just walking with the horse, taking turns to walk with the horse. And what was so interesting was that you could see that the horse was very aware of the husband because he was much more available if you see what I mean, he, he, he was emotionally more available. As in he was he so, was showing his emotion a lot more. He was showing his emotion a lot more and, mm. and but also he was just more present. He was able to be more present in that moment. So it was like the horse went, Oh, there you are, I'll walk <laughs> alongside you. Wow. And then his wife went in and because she wasn't able to do that, because of her very depressed state, and I'm sure you've all experienced being with someone who's very depressed. You know, they're not always there with you, are they? No. Because they're mm. in a much more collapsed state. That's right. And it was like the horse couldn't see her. <laughs> it's like So he just went off and he was in the arena. He just went off and did his own thing. You know, the horse isn't making a judgment or anything. Obviously, he can see you in a visual cortex sort of sense, but not in a, an emotional connected sense. I'm trying to, trying to understand that situation, Grace. So are you saying mm. then that you were able to help the husband, but you were not at that stage to help the wife because she wasn't ready? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that's what the horse showed us. Okay, right. So what... The horse showed us very, very clearly was how those people were showing up in the world. Ah, right. Mm-hmm. And, and, you. and, you know, I probably, and if you'd met them, you would have known, as a, you know, humans, we would have known that. But it's very difficult to start the discussion because person to person, there's judgment comes in and people think, mm-hmm. oh, well, she's just saying it. And, you know, all of those things that we say to ourselves. But like this, it was easier 
because the woman was able to say, well, the horse didn't do that, but it was doing that with my husband. And I'd go, hmm, that's very interesting, isn't it? I wonder what you think about it. And then she was able to start talking about how she didn't feel very present. Mm. And I was able to say, yes, and because you weren't very present, that's why the horse behaved in this particular way. So through the medium of the horse, you're able to touch and talk about things that are very much trickier to talk about in the therapy room. That's yeah, extraordinary. Example. I remember when I'd learned to ride, and I ride very, very badly, Grace, but when I was younger, I learned to ride. And I remember them saying, if you're nervous about something, the horse will sense it. And if, for example, I hated jumping. So they said, every time you come up to a jump, what you're saying in your mind is, I don't really want to do this. So what happens is the horse gets up to the jump and refuses to jump. And usually you go straight over the horse's head. And that's exactly what happened. And, and so, so horses have got this huge empathy, haven't they, really? And understanding of they humans. Do, and they, it's more about the fact that because horses are prey animals and they're also social animals, so they set up to live in a herd. So they need to know how everybody else in the herd is thinking and what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And obviously they don't have language in the way that we do. And they also have to know what's going on in the environment all the time to keep themselves safe. This is obviously in the wild. Because physically they're very large. They've got enormous guts. You know, their intestines are very, very large. They've got very, very big hearts. And we know, for instance, that all of us, all mammals, we've got sensory feedback pathways coming from our gut, from our heart, into our brain and and vice versa. So it's going up and down our nervous systems. A horse uses its gut and its heart more specifically than its cognitive brain to literally feel the environment, you know, what's going on around me. And we've seen this, you know, every time you watch a lot of David Attenborough's programmes, you know, you've seen things where, you know, the zebra's been drinking at the waterhole next to the lion and it knows because it's sensing it through its nervous system that at that moment in time, that lion doesn't have any intent to eat it. Mm-hmm. And so they're using that sensory feedback system to read the room or the arena or the environment or whatever you want to call it so they're picking up on our nervous systems and we because particularly their gut and their heart are so very much larger and so much better and more attuned to doing it because that's what they do all the time they pick up all this information and we can do it we just we're not as good as it because culturally and educationally we've been taught to sort of use our actually a very small part of the prefrontal cortex. This sounds incredibly fascinating Grace and and I want to come back to what you do currently but I I think we also want to know how you came about this because <laughs> you've had an amazing journey to get to where you are now. I mean when I say amazing yeah. it's it's there's been a lot happening hasn't there. Uh, you had major heart surgery at 7. And as a result of that, you were limited to what you could do as a child because of the physical demands on it. And it wasn't till later in your life that you were able to to try things like scuba diving, you were saying, and walking, and you've done running. Yes. Now we know you've done quite a lot, but I just want to start with that. Do you remember the feelings that you had when you were younger and wanting to get on and do things? Yes, absolutely. I have very strong memories of being in a playground, and I because of my heart condition I needed to squat in order to get the oxygen around my body so I remember squatting at the side of the playground and desperately wanting to join in and not being able to so 
Yeah, yeah. And then obviously you grow up and you've done lots of things and you have an incredible amount of qualifications. So I also want to touch on as well. But it was in Florida while you were swimming with dolphins, mm. which is an absolute treat, isn't it? I mean, it's just what I'd, I've never yeah, done exactly. before. Yeah. I don't know if Linda's ever done it before, but I've never and I would love to. But it was in your 30s that it sort of changed your life a bit, didn't you? What, what happened to, to sort of change the course of your life, Grace? Well, at the time I was running a large property company in London and I went to Florida and actually there were cheap tickets because the Gulf War was on. Oh, <laughs> so nobody was flying. <laughs> So I went to Florida and just randomly and went down to the Keys. And there there was a place called the Dolphin Research Centre, which is where it wasn't as bad as it sounded. So basically lots of rescue dolphins or dolphins who had had other careers. So, the you know, the Flipper, for instance. Oh, yes, absolutely. That, yes. That, film, that television series. One of the, I think there'd been many, but one of the dolphins that had played Flipper was there at the end of his film career. And there were several dolphins there who'd actually had sort of working lives in the in the American Navy. And so th- there were a number of different dolphins there and, and they'd made this place and, and it, it was pretty amazing because the dolphins could actually jump out of their enclosures into the open sea if they wanted to, because dolphins can jump mm. very high, you've seen them. <laughs> and, and they didn't, partly because that's where they got their food, mm. so they weren't daft <laughs> anyway I visited this place and thought was completely entranced with it and, and decided that I, come what may I was going to go back and I went back because that was just a holiday so I took a month off work and went back in the summer of that year and spent a month working there as a volunteer and it was watching the dolphins one of the dolphins work with a child and I can't now remember the disability she had she may have had autism but she was about four years old and she'd never spoken. She'd never said mummy. Um, her mother was in the water with her and also a trainer and also a psychologist, I believe. And this dolphin absolutely knowing when it was coming past the child. And, and she was able to put her hand around the, and the dolphin came past really, really slowly. So it took a long time for this child to put her hand around its fin. And then it very, very gently swam off and took her for a little sort of journey around this, this enclosure in the water. And Crikey. very it was extremely moving. And and subsequent to that, this child started to say Gosh. some of her first words. Now, there's been sort of quite a lot of research since then about why does that interaction with an animal prompt these sort of things? But so I haven't got time for going into that here. But anyway, I was incredibly moved by that. It was just one of those moments when I thought I'd been talking about becoming a speech therapist for years and it hadn't happened for various reasons and I thought I just need to put my money where my mouth is and that's what I did yes and so I I sort of gave up what I was doing and and applied to university and I think it was the following year I I started university and did a four-year degree. You mentioned earlier that you were working with a large property company I think you're being slightly modest because you you co-founded Regis which I think we've all heard of but that must have been quite a thought yeah. To stop doing that, which which that's a big that's a big job, but to stop doing that and go back to education, I know it's something maybe you'd thought about doing, but to actually do that, that's a big life changing decision, Grace. Yes, I suppose when you put it like that, it, it sounds like that, but it it seemed like it was so obvious as a thing to do because I'd wanted to be a speech and language therapist. It would been in my head for 
many, many years. And then life had taken me in this other direction. And, and doing Regis, it was a mistake. I sort of fell in. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't set out to have a career in that direct. You know, it wasn't like I decided I was going to go into commercial property. And it, it was just something that happened. And I, I would always say that I was in the right place at the right time. And <laughs> happened to do it well <laughs> when I did it. Or you could say you, you grabbed opportunities. When you see an opportunity, yeah. you you have a go. Yes. So uh, I, I would put it as that, really. It's, yes. it's I, something grabbed the, that, I definitely yeah, but... grabbed the opportunity. Mm. And I, what I really liked about it, and I think it, it fueled the change, was the piece I really liked was the creativity of it. It was the creating of Regis and setting it all up and the imagining of what it could be, which is what it became. And then almost once it's set up and you've got all the systems in place, it, it felt slightly like, you know, I've done my job now. <laughs> Someone <laughs> else can run it, take it forward into the future with, you know, just on a day-to-day basis. But the creativity part is, mm. is now. This is where you've, your moments change after swimming with the, the dolphins mm. and seeing this movement and going back and having some more time volunteering. You didn't start riding, as in horse riding, no. until your late 30s. No. And it's it's something that obviously coincides with what you're doing now. So tell us what happened then after you decided to become a speech and language therapist and not an ordinary one, let's put it that way. So what happened after that then, Grace? Well, I, after I qualified, I moved to Devon. And riding a horse was another thing like speech and language therapy that I had, as a child, you know, I'd read all the horsey books and I'd pretended <laughs> to ride and ridden my bike with a bit of string and all those things that little girls and probably little boys, some boys do. But I didn't come from a family background that rode. So it wasn't in, you know, so even if I'd voiced it, it wasn't something that we did. When I moved to Devon, what I discovered was that there were a lot of people like me. So ordinary ladies, (laughs) ordinary women, because I'd been living in Surrey before and it had seemed quite an elite sport, if you like. It didn't seem very accessible at the time. And when I moved to Devon, it felt much more accessible and just part of every, everyday life. And so within, I don't think it was very long, I think it was probably within six, to, six weeks to two months of arriving there, I was talking to somebody, a woman I knew, and she said, well, she said, the only thing to do is get a horse. <laughs> and I went, oh, yes, okay. <laughs> and within, I think, a week after my, me sort of vaguely nodding my head, she'd arranged a horse for me for the winter. I, and that was it. You, that was you it. were made to ride. That was it, basically. And I, I'd had a couple, at that point, I think I'd had a couple of riding lessons. And I went to get this horse with her, and it was on the other side of the moor. And this horse was very, very kind. And I remember riding back across the moor with her, and then it, this horse was living in her field. The next day I decided to go riding and I had actually never put any tack on a horse. That's tricky in itself, isn't it? (laughs) Sort of pulling up with my tack and and everything else. And it's all, it's completely muddy because Devon's like that at that time of year. And and just, this horse was so wonderful because it was sort of standing there (laughs) while I fumbled around for about three quarters of an hour trying to put a bit in its mouth and, you know, put the saddle on and yes, so the rest the rest is history, as they say. It's interesting you say about horses and that being a kind horse. I mean, horses are beautiful creatures, but you still have to be wary of horses, don't you? I mean, mm-hmm. the, it, you know, it's, this is going back to your therapy and, and what you do now is there's a certain way of approaching horses. I mean, I, I honestly think at the time that there was so much I didn't know 
that particular moment in time, I was probably mm-hmm. a little bit apprehensive, but I had no fear, okay. you know, I, because I didn't know anything. And so I placed my trust in this horse that appeared to be quite kind to me. I was wondering, at what point, Grace, did you did you consider, because you said earlier, they're a great feedback mechanism. At what point did you think about using horses to help other people in, you, in, in, in your career as a therapist? The sort of horse riding, if you like, that journey, learning more and more about horses. What I noticed was, as I was riding, so when my riding went well and when I had sort of gone cantering across the moors with the wind blowing in my hair, it gave me this sense of courage. It gave me a backbone, if you like. So when everything went really well, what I found was the parallel process going on at work and that, that I'd be stronger and, and more visible if you like at work that was something I noticed as as things went along at the same time I was reading a lot of books about something called natural horsemanship because there's all sorts of ways of being with horses and I came across the work of somebody called Linda Kahanov she put together a way of working with horses with people so that the horses could help people and she'd done a lot of work noticing all of Mm -hmm. these different things that horses can help us with Carrying on from all of that, what was going on was that I was obviously working in the NHS with all the challenges. Yeah. (laughs) Everybody knows about. (laughs) You know, and I'd come from a commercial background, so there were lots of things that I found unbelievable about how it all worked. Just thinking, well, this this is ridiculous. (laughs) How do they think they can run anything in this particular way? When I first started work within the NHS, Tony Blair had just come into power. And, and there was a great resurgence. There was a lot of money going in. There was a lot of ability within the NHS to be creative, I suppose, with, with your ideas of how to work with people. We kept going back around the same wheel. And I think probably by about the third or fourth time round the same change wheel, they'd go, well, you know, things aren't working, so we're going to change it. You know, they'd obviously had some management consultants in, mm-hmm. but, and they'd give it a fancy other name. But actually, we kept going around the same circles. I do remember that era so yeah. well in about the NHS re rechanging its values and yes. its uh, perception. I, I remember that so well, Grace, yeah. that I can I can really have empathy with you in the sense that you're trying to keep up with it or actually you're so ahead that, that they keep changing and going two steps back. Yes, and, and for me always the reason I went into doing what I did and, and into the NHS was Firstly, because I wanted to be a therapist. I wanted to be a clinician and I wanted to do the work with people. And also there was a real sense, you know, because of being very proud, you know, like most of us are very proud of the NHS and being very proud of working within it. And yet there was huge frustration. And, And then I started doing a lot of work with people who had communication difficulties. There was a psychological basis to some of them as opposed to an organic basis so when I when I say that what I mean is you know if you've had a stroke there's been damage to part of your brain or um, if you've got something wrong with your voice and you've got a, a nodule mm-hmm. on your vocal cords there's that's something physical um, so I've done a lot of that work but I started doing a lot more work voice work with people who didn't have any obvious organic problem a lot of it was down to how they were feeling emotionally. Yes, yeah, so almost, as you say, trauma, trauma. as well. Yes, was... yeah, so I, I got very interested in the traumatic effect of not being able to communicate. And that goes across a range of communication difficulties, obviously. And also the sort of voice problems that people had that were much more psychologically based, emotionally based. 
So at then what point then, Grace, did you join this together? Because just slightly touching on this, I mean, you've done some incredible work and, and it also says here that you work as a traumatologist mm-hmm. for a charity for women who have suffered domestic abuse yes. and, and you continue working as a speech and therapist in the private sphere as well. But was that quite hard as well? It's another moment where I went, well, I'm going to go and be trained. So I went and found the you know, what I considered at the time the best training I could find in this country. And it was somebody who'd done her original work with Linda Kahanov, this sort of guru that I'd read about. You know. And because I'd come from this sort of real science NHS background, I was very keen on it being as <laughs> as proper, if you like, as possible. You know, it's partly that thing of I, I'd been used to doing a profession that people vaguely understood what I did and recognised what I did in, in a sense. You know, it's very professionally organised and we have a, a college and you have to adhere to professional guidelines and things. And I, whilst working with horses might seem much more out there, I wanted to be as professional as I possibly could be in order to do it. So I trained with them and the training overall took just over a year. And what I found was that nobody actually goes to see anybody for any sort of work, I suppose, in inverted commas, unless yeah. there's something wrong. So that was a sort of fairly obvious thing to say. But and I I thought, Mm. oh, I need something else here. (laughs) I need to learn something else in order to be able to work safely with these people, I think, and be really, really sure that that what I do, what the work that we do doesn't re-traumatize them. What I was finding was that I didn't have quite a big enough toolbox, I suppose, is what I'm saying. Well, I'm just looking down your qualifications, actually, Grace, here. And I mean, <laughs> this is like two people. This is So you've got, you've got your education, professional qualifications, linguistics and language pathology. And then you have advanced dysphagia. Oh, d- dysphagia, that's swallowing. <laughs> dysphagia, University of Manchester, working with adults who stammer, and that's another qualification. Uh, you have vocal fold management principles and practice, working with transgender voice yeah. in 2016. And as I mentioned before, the equine facilitated human development and mm-hmm. learning, postgraduate diploma in trauma. It sounds like you have an enormous amount of qualifications and experience. Do you feel now that you have taken it to a level where you think, well, you are, you're helping a lot of people. Do you think you've got to that moment now? Are you always going to continue learning? Silly question. You probably are, actually. Yes, I I probably will. But I have promised my family and myself I'm not ever going to do a full-on two-year course. I don't think there's any left, Grace. (laughs) That requires case studies. Well, I did, I have to say the other, occasionally I see something and I, and then I have to go, no, just stop it. There's somewhere, I'm sure on your website, or maybe I've read it somewhere else, but there is a quote that says, horses accurately read our silent human language. I mean, that's quite a profound thing to Yes. to read actually so they're, all the time they're reading our intent they're noticing what's going on in our body we're not very good at noticing what's going on in our own body unless we train ourselves to be so all of the things that are happening through our nervous system is going on all the time but usually we override it with our cognitions with our thoughts with our story you know the interesting thing is actually is that it's the sensory system going through our body is actually what's driving our thoughts and our story, not the other way around. 
Now, I talked earlier that you are a proud grandmother of Ileana and Sophia, and you call them the twin lights of your your life. I think that's such a lovely expression. Now, obviously, they're going to ask you, or they probably are asking you what you do, and what what would you say to young people, young men and women, about your career? Um, As you just said, that they, they are starting degree courses now on this particular area, but what would you say to younger people that, haven't thought about what you do I mean I think I've been very fortunate in that for whatever reason and I think it goes back to having had this very serious heart and and having grown up with this belief that that I needed to make my life worthwhile because I was lucky I was so fortunate to be alive and and so it's that grasping of opportunities, isn't it? So what you what you were doing then and now, and what you've achieved is quite phenomenal, really. Grace, it's been lovely talking to you today. I mean, thank you. That's all we have time for today on Women Making Waves. Our thanks to our guests, Faradina Afifi and Grace Lawson-Baker. You can contact us via social media on Twitter and Facebook at WomenMW or on Instagram at Women Making Waves. You can also find us on cambridge105.co.uk or visit our website, womenmakingwaves.co.uk, where you can hear all of our interviews. See you next time. Bye. Bye.